Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. (laughs) Hi, Eric. And this week, we're speaking with writer Joan Silber about her newest novel, Secrets of Happiness. Yeah, I mean, we get into this in the conversation with Joan, but one of the things that I know both of us really appreciated about this novel was its multi-plottedness and how it kind of moves around between really great just character studies, kind of almost like a a series of, of really gripping short stories that are all connected. I just felt that all those stories, it was a wonderful escape. I just dove into it and finished it 36 hours later and totally enjoyed it. Yeah, I had that kind of classic experience of reading it where I didn't know how it was going to hit me or if I was going to care. And then I was just completely in its, in its grips and, you know, enjoying it, but also so inundated with the, with the story and the people and what was happening to them. So I think that's the ultimate thing that, you know, you're after when you're reading. Yes, that's the kind of thing that I'm often looking for from books, but I rarely find, you know, like books will oftentimes pull me in with their big ideas or something like that. And there are definitely big ideas in this novel, but it is so rare to find the book that can really like sink its claws into me and keep me reading. Well, let's listen to the interview. Let's do it. We have Joan Silber on the line with us today. Joan is the author of nine novels, including Improvement, her last novel, which was the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Penn Faulkner Award. In addition to being named one of the year's best books by the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Kirkus, and others. Her novels Fools, The Size of the World, and Ideas of Heaven have all been long-listed or finalists for major awards. She joins us remotely today from her home in New York City to talk about her latest novel, Secrets of Happiness, a multi-vocal story that radiates out from a single family dealing with a father's intimate betrayal. It turns out that he has a secret family that he told nobody about, which I'm sure we'll get to when we talk about the book. As it moves across characters and continents, Secrets of Happiness considers the weight of love, family, and other attachments in a world where nothing is as it seems, and happiness, a fleeting experience, best savored in the present. Thanks for joining us, Joan. Thank you. It's great to be here. I was wondering if we could start by talking about, you know, just the multi-perspective way you write your novels. Maybe you could tell us how long you've been writing like that and how you started, how you kind of alighted on that form. This is the fifth book I've done that way. And I feel like I've done my best work in this form. People often ask, you know, like, when are you going to move into a a single line novel, which I, I have done before. But I really love this form. And it's partly because I mean, we're all aware now, I think, particularly in the world where everything comes into us all the time, all the information. It's not just one person's story. So I like the way this allows me to do it. The first time I did it was in Ideas of Heaven, which is five books ago. And that one, I I just thought, well, you know, I'd really like to write about the guy who's the bad guy in this story and give him his own story. And then it began to sort of peel along. But the ones after that, I knew I was going to do this form. And it has gotten more novel-like. I feel like this one, you know, it has a beginning and an end that sort of the 
beginning comes around to the end in a way that has a shape, which is, you know, what I work for. But otherwise, I make it up as I go along. That is amazing to me. In a similar vein, I wanted to talk about Charles Dickens. Oh, who good. is obviously, he's not only, he's an author whose novels are frequently cited by the characters in Secrets of Happiness, but also who I think, particularly thinking about Great Expectations or even the Pickwick Papers, his kind of peregrinating plots, which are heavy with the intrigue of inheritance, unknown benefactors, and secret romances, seems to be like a real influence on both that structure and the story of Secrets of Happiness. So can you talk a little bit about Dickens's formal and content inspiration? I always loved Dickens. I read Great Expectations in high school, and I loved it. I mean, that's his simplest and most, in some ways, well-formed book. But I loved all the others, too, and I read some of them in grad school, and I thought, oh, Mm. these really are, you know, serious novels. But I, as I was writing this, I knew I was going to write about love and money. I knew that was going to, the way they crossed each other was going to enter this. And it kept feeling like what happens in Dickens all the time, that people's (laughs) motives are so structured by that, you know, it's so important. The first book I I wrote, my first novel, I stole the title from Dickens. It was called Household Words, and that's the name Dickens used for his magazine. So I've always felt attached to him. One person asking me questions now said, you know, how do you feel about coincidence? You know, because Dickens is so famous for that. And you have all these, you know, things that we forgot about that turn up later. And the truth is, I think life thinks up far more coincidences than we could ever dream up. It's much cornier than we are. So I have no hesitation about feeling that those connections are quite actual and convincing. You know, it's interesting because um, though I'm not much of a reader of Dickens, I also think of it as a one large story, you know, with all these intersections. And in your novel, in this one in particular, I wouldn't say it's one story with multiple characters, you know, told from the perspective of multiple characters. It really does seem like so many different stories. And that's why um, I was curious to know if if you think of your work as more character-driven in a sense, because we don't really get a sense of one encompassing story. It really does seem like, in this case, six characters' stories that do intersect, but um, the larger plot doesn't quite seem to be the point. So maybe you could talk about if that's accurate and just what is so poignant about writing that way for you. That's a totally accurate description of the way I write. And I started doing them as linked stories, and then they became, you know, more novel-like. But I think, I, you know, I work in a form that kind of is pretty close between the two. But I would say that I don't have a, you know, my, you're writing out of your own sense of what life is. And I'm not sure that I have a sense that there's a single plot that's driving things. That I, I think of it as more particular than that. And I also, I always felt that I had trouble with plots when I was writing them. And this gave me a way to use my strengths in the kind of writing I wanted to do. I was able to explore these different consciousnesses more closely. I think, you know, I like the intimacy of the close gaze. I like hearing what a character is thinking, whether it's first or third person. We're very much inside the character's head. So it gave me, by moving around among different characters, it gave me a way to create a larger canvas while still having that very intimate relation to each character. Yeah, you know, another thing that comes up as a kind of frequent reference, and it's not, I guess, terribly surprising in a novel that's about what happiness is and what our attachments are or aren't, but is the kind of 
figure of Buddha or the kind of larger structure of Buddhism and its main teaching about non-attachment as being at least one of we can think about the secrets of happiness is to lose one's attachment or grip on life. So I wondered, are you personally interested or a practitioner of Buddhism and kind of how that as a rhythm and teaching kind of worked its way into the novel? Yes, is the short answer to that question. It's probably more than 20 years since I first started getting interested in Buddhism. I can't say I'm a practitioner because I'm not much of a meditator. I, I do it sometimes, but not very often. But the ideas under it were very important to me and really mm. life-changing. And so I'm always trying to use them in the writing in a way that is not heavy-handed. And in this case, I have a couple of, you know, there's a young character who does her own sort of version of it, who pipes up every so often. Then, and then other people sort of talk about it. I think at this time that I'm writing, it's more commonly around us. True. So yeah. um, it's less far-fetched that I would have characters who cite it because it's pretty much in the intellectual and spiritual atmosphere around us, I think. But it is important to me, yes. You know, talking about attachment, it occurs to me that there's a, theme throughout the book, like Eric was referencing about money and love and um, what money can attach you to and, you know, what people who love each other owe each other, financial or otherwise. And that really resonated, I think. So I just, because, you know, we haven't talked that much about the actual plot of the book yet, maybe you could walk us through some of the characters' relationship to money in this book and how it kind of morphs from story to story? Oh, what an interesting question. The story begins with a young man discovering that his father, a paternity suit is placed under the parent's door, and he discovers that his father has a, a secret family. The father is in the, I want to say the rag trade, because that's what he calls it in the book, but in the garment business, and has been traveling to the various countries in Asia where it's outsourced. He's been doing that for decades, but on one of the trips to Thailand, he brought back a then young wife and has now has two sons who were teenagers. I have to say, whenever I give readings from this chapter, and it's the first chapter, because it's, so I've used it a lot, someone comes up to me afterwards and says, I had an uncle like that, meaning there was a secret family on the side. So apparently there's more of it than I knew. In any case, the story starts with how the mother deals with that. She's completely shocked. She keeps saying, I feel crazy. And she's a, quite a commendable person in every way, very sensible, you know, but is sort of stunned. And we see her go and travel. I won't tell the whole story, but her relation to money is actually not to worry. I mean, her husband has been a good provider and she gets some sort of divorce, you know, that's adequate. But her interests are not that, but her daughter keeps sort of nagging her about it. But the story then moves to the Thai family, to one of the sons. So, and they are much more cut off and have much more complicated relations to money. And certainly the mother, although she was not a hooker, was moved by money to make her connection with this man. He was the rich American. But in fact, she, you know, stands by him in lots of ways. So the complications of that, you know, I wanted to unfold and the, the ways the mother and her now American sons understand money was important to me. Well, and then he repays her by after she takes care of him because he dies. I hope that's not a plot spoiler. He dies of a stroke-related causes and she's taking care of him for the last year of his life. And then he repays her by leaving her nothing. 
at the yeah, end. He hasn't changed his will. As far as anybody knows, he hasn't changed his will in like 30 years. Yeah. yeah. And so that, I mean, that was kind of shocking. And I guess it's this question, you know, I think throughout the book, we get the sense that people should be compensated financially for care and for connection and for work. There are plenty of cases where money is kind of withheld from people where we it seems unfair, but then at the same time, I mean, can emotional debts be repaid financially? Does that, does that right the scales? I mean, did you, were you thinking about that as you were writing? In fact, one of the characters quotes, I once had, in the many crummy jobs I've had, I was once a sort of errand person for a a lawyer. And they did a lot of divorce cases at this firm. And you could see in the cases that people are trying to collect, I mean, I kind of quote this in the book. I mean, people are trying to collect money for something that you can't get money for. They hope that by harassing their their now ex-spouse with you know demands for payments, they'll be compensated, but they really won't. And that's kind of what I think. I don't think, you know, I'd rather people did behave, you know, justly with each other on those counts, but I, I'm not campaigning for it. And I think it's unlikely. I think there's always going to be some confusion of the way debts are called in. Two very nice men told me that they were quite upset when they came to the part in the second chapter where the male character we're hearing the story from tries to call in a debt from an old girlfriend in a way that's, I'll say, unseemly. And we've liked him, so we're sort of surprised that this happens, although I think it's pretty plausible. But, and he's not being spiteful, he's doing something for himself, kind of. But I think there's a lot of that in life and probably in this book. A lot of calling in debts in a way that isn't necessarily just, but is just sort of what people do. It's a human failing that keeps recurring. And that's certainly part of the story. And also the, it's towards people having a relation to their emotions where they don't have to do that. You know, the earlier question I was asked about my relation to Buddhism is sort of plays into that, that the goal of having a certain distance from your emotions is not to behave in that way. But if everybody behaved that way, there would be no novels. So I'm I'm, I'm naturally going to trace that out. You know, Joan, as much as, like you're saying, there can never be the kind of expectation of, you know, financial compensation for all the various forms of unrewarded care that go on, not only just between your characters, but everyone experiences this. But it also seems that love itself... I hesitate to say this, but love itself might be kind of a losing game or not like a sure game in the various relationships, one of which involves, for example, the young man, who Ethan, who starts out the story. You know, he gets into a relationship with an older man who's already in a relationship that's kind of, I'm not going to give away too much, but a relationship that's in decline. And then he ends up taking care of not only this older man, but the ex-lover. And then at the end, feels like he's kind of emotionally cut out from the two of them. So I am, I guess, in some sense wondering if money also can't provide a kind of lasting source of happiness. Usually, at least in America, ideologically, we will say like, oh, well, love is really all you need. And it's strikes me that this novel points to the fact that that may also not be enough. Well, you know, it's a matter of impermanence. Sure, right. Back to the Buddhism uh, thing, yeah. So (laughs) some loves do, you know, last well over a long period of time, but there's certainly going to be instances where they don't. And that's part of the nature of life that that's going to happen, and certainly in fiction. So I wanted to, I mean, Ethan lands on his feet as far as I'm concerned. By the end of the Sure, yeah, that's fair. Okay. And his mother remains a kind of example to him in the end. So, and I was happy when I, when I was able to sort of turn the spotlight on her at the end because I like her kind of 
holding the book up. But I, I feel like I'm not making, I'm tracing how it flows more than I'm making pronouncements about that. But as a fiction writer, you're responsible for what you notice. And certainly what I have noticed is the uncertainty of lots of that, yeah. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Joan Silber, author most recently of Secrets of Happiness. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Sarah Schulman on the line. Sarah's new book is Let the Record Show, Political History of Act Up New York, 1987 through 1993. And she has a book to recommend. What's your book, Sarah? My absolutely favorite book this year is Memorial Drive by Natasha Trethewey. She's one of our greatest writers. It's an amazing personal story about when her mother was murdered when she was 19. But she saved the story until she was at the height of her knowledge and understanding of being a writer. It's so incredibly well-written. It's unbelievably constructed. It's a lesson in writing itself, in honesty, but also in language. So that's my favorite book this year. Mm. And how did you come to this book? I'm a fan, so I've been following her work, but this book just blew me away. Was it difficult to read at times? Not at all. It's enlightening. It's really enlightening. I have a a second book I read this year that I really loved, which is Vanguard by Martha S. Jones. It will completely change your mind about everything you think you know about the women's struggle for the vote, where she shows that the suffrage movement really only won the vote for white women and that the struggle for black women to vote has been ongoing ever since and to this day. That sounds timely with all the anti-voting laws that are passing across the country. Well, great. So tell us the names of the books again and the authors. Memorial Drive by Natasha Trethewey and Vanguard by Martha S. Jones. Thank you so much, Sarah. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Joan Silver, author of Secrets of Happiness. to read a quote from the book. This is someone reflecting on um, their past when they lived in Qatar and remembering the people around them. She says, but what kind of life had we had? Our Nepali housekeeper, Binsa, had not seen her own family for nine years. Our stunning apartment complex had been built by men from South Asia and Africa who lived in sweltering camps and couldn't leave until their contracts expired. We were no better than the fat cats in Dickens' day, insisting that they could never compete if they gave workers more. How had we pretended not to notice? We sort of had. That part, I mean, this comes up, you know, you were talking about the, I I had not made the connection that the father who has the two families was in the garment trade. And then later there's this documentary being made about, you know, mills in, in Leeds. And then they go to, you know, to Dhaka after after to shoot more and see the present day working conditions that are so similar to the ones of the 19th century. But I thought that that passage really struck me, you know, especially within the context of this multi-perspective book where, um, where 
really cluing into every person's humanity, every character's humanity, and people who seem incidental suddenly were so deeply with them. And of course, that that seems like the um, the goal of of fiction in some ways that we you know go deep into someone else's humanity, and that's such something that is so hard to really grasp that you know we are human and complex and that other people around us have that same complexity and it's almost like people just don't act like <laughs> they they realize that most of the time so I, I wondered about the political implications for you of of writing fiction and also just the way that you tell you know multiple stories if they if you if you think of it in some way as a political project I, I do think of it as as a political project. Um, that I, I have the character. Um, her her father works for um, a, a company in 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 Qatar, and and so she's in Doha, and that's that's. But I was changing planes in Doha. Uh, Qatar Air at one point was the cheap way to fly to Thailand, where I was going. So I read. I mean, it, it means all those things in a larger sense. But I happened on a lot of that information about how that. Uh, economy works. And and I was sort of shocked. Of course, I just went through the airport. I didn't do anything, you know. Um, so, but I think, I do think of myself as as political. I, you know, I would certainly identify as a leftist. It's not, it's not a word I would avoid. You know, obviously, again, I don't want to be heavy-handed about it. I want to, but it's, all, I meant it to be around the edges of this book, absolutely. If you mentioned the, also, where I live on the Lower East Side, there used to be an art project someone did every year where they wrote in chalk the names of the women who had lived in these on these streets who were killed in the Triangle Fire, which um, uh, appears briefly in this book, but where the young women who worked in the making clothing were not allowed to, they were blocked from leaving until they were checked for theft, and, and so they got trapped in a fire. Um, so, I mean, does that not sound like what goes on in Bangladesh today? You know, it's so similar. Uh, so the shocking, I mean, the clothing industry has been particularly bad, I think, partly because it often employs young women to sew, um, and they tend to have had less power. Um, but yes, I wanted that to fold into the book. I wanted it to, it's not the central story, but it's always around the edges and the, and the injustice of that. And, and then I had this character, Bud, who's a kind of knockabout guy who has tons of different jobs. But I've, I sent him to Cambodia because from traveling, I know that Cambodia has a lot of NGOs because it's in need and it doesn't have a government that interferes with that as a lot of governments do. And then I put him in the, you know, I gave him a job helping people in the garment industry because it's so, you know, it's so there. It's so, it's so impossible to avoid. Um, but yes, I wanted it to be political. And, and, and do you think of fiction as something that is capable of, I mean, is that just us trying to make ourselves feel better as we enjoy a wonderful book? Or do you think that there really is, character building benefit of, of reading fiction? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, obviously we're all wearing clothes that were made under terrible conditions and we, we probably won't stop doing that, you know, from reading the book, but I do think fiction increases awareness. Uh, uh, I totally believe that. I, I think it, at the very least, it reinforces the idea that other people have interior lives, you know, even though they're not visible to us literally. What action is comes about as a result of a, of a book is complicated to say, but we know certain books have had political, you know, Harry Beecher Stowe, you know, there, there's, been, there's been striking examples of it. But I think it makes, I think people who don't read are shallower. 
actually do think that. So I think that the, so there's some there's some little way that I, I I don't sit down and think I'm improving the world by doing it, but I but I don't think that it's advocating things that I think are terrible. I think it's clear what side the fiction is on, uh, and that's probably you know what I can do. So you know, sticking again with this like question of of your characters and kind of the the worlds that they inhabit. I mean, they're all so different. So I'm both like kind of marvel at the way in which you weave them all together in completely plausible ways. But I imagine that as a writer, it must be so much fun to play with people whose stories are related, but like vastly different. So it's like in some ways you you feel like you're writing, you know, three or four different novels, but it all kind of coheres into one. So I wanted to ask you kind of how you came to these characters and given how lovingly you write through them, even at their hard moments, right? Even at the parts where it's like, oh, I can't really love him anymore. Or he's, he's difficult to like. If there were any characters that you wanted to stay with longer that kind of you felt yourself continuing to return to. You know, people always ask me that question. And I'm always like, oh, I'm so glad I'm done with him. I'm done. You know, I don't, I don't usually have like a, a wild longing to continue. I'm certainly more attached to some than others. And some sections are longer. I mean, I'm very attached to Bud, in fact. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah, Bud yeah. markedly and, has the longest part of the novel. Yeah, I mean, we, we get his whole life story. We don't come in later. We come in when, when, when he's um, really young. That one also... I I wrote it um, not too long after the election of 2016, and I wanted right. to. So it begins. He has very right wing parents in the 50s. Um, they're in the John Birch Society, which was a big deal and is still around. Apparently, I got to you know do all this research. Mm. But I wanted that. I wanted the sense of how someone gets away from that, how someone is you know bred to that and then chooses not to do it. Um, but yes, I am more attached to to certain characters definitely, and, and feel. Um, closer to them. I mean, I like the daring of doing people who aren't exactly me. I mean, they're all, I, I mean, all of them, of course. But I like, you know, imagining otherwise. When I, I always sort of quote this when people ask me, you know, how was it done? Um, when the movie Carol came out and, um, what's her name? Kate Blanchett was, you know, promoting it on radio. Somebody asked her, I think just to has something to ask. Was it a great challenge for you as a straight woman to play a lesbian in this movie? And she, of course, said, you know, I'm an actress. You know, if I played a murderer, you wouldn't think it was remarkable that I'd never murdered anybody. Um, so I, I, there are clearly limits. Um, there are lawns that, you know, we can't cross and then I, you know, try not to cross. But for the most part, I like, I, I pick people whose plights I can imagine, that there's some there's some way in which I am empathetic to to their wrongdoing, to their this, to their aspirations, you know. And I like that stretch. I like I like pushing myself a little outside myself. Uh, a friend talking about Amphidi's short stories uh, once said that there's this moment in her work where you kind of go down the trap door, and suddenly the story gets you, and you're there, and you don't quite see it happening, but it, it always happens in, in her stories. And I thought that was really true. And um, I don't understand. And I, and I felt similar reading this book that I, I didn't know how I was going to like it, or I didn't, you know, it didn't seem like initially something that might be exactly perfect for me, but suddenly through the first story, I was suddenly there and I had gone down the trap door. And um, it seems like almost like a, you know, a master painter 
how how there's tricks of perspective. There must be something where they're not, it's not that kind of labored naturalistic painting of birds or whatever naturalist painting, you know, from the that Dutch Dutch masters, it doesn't seem quite like that, but it seems that you're able to give such a sense of the whole in these stories. There must be something that you know you do that you can share with us. <laughs> how you how you do it? Is it a question of editing? Is it um is it a certain thing that every character needs to reveal? I mean, how do you how do you get a sense of these people from thirty or forty pages? I love this question, which is a complicated question. I think that one, I didn't want that kind of belabored naturalism. And that's one reason I do them as short pieces about each character, because I don't have to go over every little thing. But the sense of suddenly seeing the character, suddenly feeling something different and more dramatically. I think of, I would say my, my model plot, if someone starts off shallow and, you know, get through the of experience becomes less shallow, sees into life more deeply or feels things more deeply. So it's probably that moment that is the moment where, you know, you're with the character more intimately because you feel the, the sharp um, change in them. Well, not, change may be the wrong word. In fact, I was raised on the idea that in a short story, a character changed. And I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, sometimes that's true, sometimes that's not. I'm certainly not about a character necessarily changing for the better, but there's a moment in which um, they see life more clearly and they feel something more clearly about what's going on. And so I'm moving them towards that to a less just ambling along stage, you know, where something sharp has really uh, happened. I mean, insofar as there's a secret, it's that it's increasing the intensity of the event that happens to this character, putting them through more. uh, So we get to that. You know, speaking of secrets, one thing that I did wonder at the end of the novel is kind of so, and the novel's obviously titled titled Secrets of Happiness, which we see fleeting moments. So can you give us just a sense of how you think through the characters you're exploring a secret that maybe never ultimately is found or is something that's kind of in the in-between, you know, not exactly a precise location? Another great question. I gave it the title after I'd finished the first first chapter, which was published separately as a story, because I thought of, you know, the father has a secret life. And then the mother, in some ways, makes her way towards a somewhat happier way to live, although, um, you know, she's not happy, happy. But so that was crucial to me. Uh, I didn't mean to say that I had the secret to happiness, you know, but I feel that and I'm not against secrets either. I think it's fine if people don't, don't tell everything. But, but I am interested in the roots that people take. So in the end of this, when I, I, I always have a hard time working on the ending and just getting those last pages right. And in this one, I can reveal this without ruining the book. It's, um, the son is visiting the mother um, and the mother is lighting a, a yardside candle, a memorial candle for her husband who jilted her and whom she divorced. But she's still maintains the custom of lighting this candle out of a out of a larger project it says out of a sense of she is connected to him no matter what it's not a matter of forgiveness even it's just a matter of that's the right thing to do she feels she's not devout she doesn't have a mystical sense of what's being done for her dead husband doing this she just wants to do it and i think that you know, that's the sense that I want to get in the, and the mother is a happy person. 
you know, particularly at the end. So that's the sense that I wanted to get of how it manifests itself and, and, and you know, what happiness might consist of. I read many critics bringing up Grace Paley when they're referring to your writing. Um, and I could see the connection for sure. But I also thought that Grace Paley is someone who appears so much in her own work and worked with this persona and she was hope. And um, it's the, the characters in her stories are, are so often embodied through what I sense is some kind of fictional voice of her own. And, and you have the ability to transform into all these different people. So I, I was wondering where you appear in your fiction and um, if there is a one character in the past who's been more of a, of a kind of version of yourself or if you feel that you just distill something of yourself throughout all these characters. The greatest feeling connection is, is partly my own inadvertent fault because on my, or, or doing, because on my website, I say I studied writing with Grace Paley when I was a student at Sarah Lawrence College. So, and certainly I have felt close to Grace in her writing my, my whole life. But I do write, of course, I write very differently from her, and I live in a different world. I live in a larger world. Travel has been very important to me. And the sense of, and my writing got better when I could move around more, in, in all senses, when I could move around, among different characters and when I could place them in different, you know, points in the world and sometimes in different points in history. And I just, I felt like I, it, you know, it, it lifted me up. And certainly Grace is her own, you know, Grace's persona. I mean, she was, she was a little different in real life, but not that different. So for her persona is very important in her work. And I would say that's less so for me. And I'm not, you know, I don't have, I don't have her kind of magnetism as a figure in real life. I'm just a writer. So, but I, I don't know that there's any, particularly since my early writing, you know, when I was younger, I don't think I've used myself directly as a character. And certainly in this book, there is no one character that's more me, you know, than the other. Um, my own life is quite different from these characters. I mean, I say, oh, Bud is really like me, but he isn't, you know, either, you know, both, both at once. So I don't, aside from always using my own emotions and certainly not doing certain kinds of characters, I never have a character who has a very strong will to dominate because I'm not really like that. And I, I don't want to spend time with those people writing them. Even in this book, I don't, I'm not in the voice of a character who's really driven about money. I mean, I think about it like, like most people, but I'm not, you know, obsessed. So there are things I avoid that aren't mine, but I don't know that there's anyone who's really, who's really me in, in all of these, these books, you know. Did you have correspondence with Grace Paley, you know, as you started to publish and what kind of things did she tell you? We didn't have much correspondence when I first, I mean, she told me, oh, this is great job, but we didn't have a lot, a lot of interchange as that was happening, you know. Well, thanks so much, Joan, for coming and speaking with us today. Oh, I loved being here. Thank you so much, both of you, for your great questions. All right. We've been speaking with Joan Silber, author most recently of Secrets of Happiness. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. 
Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.